Hello, and welcome to The Right Pill, a pharmacy podcast. I'm your host, Ricky the Pharmacist. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about DKA. All right, let's get right into it. So DKA, what is that? It's called diabetic ketoacidosis and happens when your body breaks down fat into fatty acids, which the body uses as an alternate source of energy. Remember, in DKA, there is either a relative or absolute insulin deficiency occurring. Therefore, your body cannot utilize the glucose that is in the blood since there is no insulin to transport the glucose into the cells where it will be used as energy in the form of ATP. Unfortunately, the byproduct of fatty acid metabolism is ketones, which are acidic in nature. This is where the ketoacidosis comes from in DKA. DKA can be life-threatening if left untreated. DKA is a complication of uncontrolled diabetes. It most often occurs in type 1 diabetes, although it can occur in type 2 diabetes under conditions of extreme stress, such as trauma or infection. DKA is usually precipitated by some triggering event, such as stress and infection. However, based on my experience on ICU rounds, the most common trigger for DKA is due to medication noncompliance. So how does a patient present with DKA? A typical DKA patient will present with a blood glucose below 800, usually in the range of 350 to 500. Some common signs and symptoms include nausea, vomiting, polyuria, polydipsia, abdominal pain, altered mental status, and dehydration, edema, respiratory failure, seizures, coma, and death. Obviously, DKA is a medical emergency and needs to be treated in a timely manner. So next, let's talk about labs. What type of labs are going to be abnormal in a DKA patient? Well, for one thing, the glucose needs to be above 250 milligrams per deciliter. Ketones will be present in the blood, mainly beta-hydroxybutyrate. The pH will be less than 7.3. The serum bicarb will be less than 18. The anion gap will be greater than 10. And the serum osmolarity will be increased. In addition to this, the serum creatinine and the BUN will also be elevated. And this is due to the fact that patients who come in in DKA are so severely dehydrated that it ends up taking a toll on their kidneys. So how do you treat a DKA patient? Well, you might be thinking, well, that's easy. Give insulin, right? Well, it is true that you do want to give insulin, but it's not the first step. So the first thing that you want to do is actually administer IV fluids in order to correct their fluid status. You see, these patients come in so severely dehydrated. So that is essentially the first step in the treatment of DKA is IV fluid replacement. Step number two is replacement of electrolytes. 
Step three is correction of the hyperglycemia. So in this case, this is where you want to give the insulin drip. And step number four is you need to correct the metabolic acidosis. So the first step we mentioned is to give IV fluids. Patients with DKA typically present with severe dehydration. This is because the glucose levels are so high in the blood that it causes you to urinate excessively, hence the polyuria, which in turn leads to increased thirst, hence the polydipsia. In fact, the dehydration can be so severe that patients can develop hypovolemic shock requiring these patients to be admitted to the ICU and placed on vasopressors. It is for this reason that DKA patients require about a liter per hour of isotonic fluids, namely NS, in order to correct the intravascular depletion. Once the intravascular depletion has been corrected, you can change the IV fluids to one-half NS if the corrected sodium is normal or high. Otherwise, continue to give NS if the corrected sodium is low. The reason why we use the corrected sodium is because in DKA, the water shifts from inside the cells to outside the cells in order to dilute the glucose in the blood. This fluid shift will also dilute the sodium, causing hyponatremia. The patient will experience the effects of hyponatremia even though the total body stores of sodium are unchanged. The next step in the treatment of DKA is going to be replacement of electrolytes. DKA patients often present with electrolyte disturbances. Serum potassium, sodium, magnesium, and phosphorus levels can all be altered mostly due to fluid shifts from the intracellular space to the extracellular space, as well as excessive diuresis and nausea and vomiting. All of the factors combined will ultimately result in electrolyte disturbances. Potassium replacement in a DKA patient is especially critical because of its effect on the heart, such as arrhythmias. It is important to realize that before you correct the hyperglycemia, you must make sure that the potassium levels are greater or equal to 3.3 milliequivalents per liter. If potassium levels are less than 3.3 milliequivalents per liter, you need to hold the insulin. The reason for this is because when you give insulin, it will drive the potassium into cells, further decreasing potassium levels. This, in turn, can lead to potentially life-threatening arrhythmias. Potassium supplementation can be done at a rate of 20 to 40 MEQs per hour until potassium levels are above 3.3. This is provided that a central line is in place. Magnesium levels should also be checked and supplemented as necessary. Remember, if magnesium levels is not corrected, you will never be able to adequately correct potassium levels. Phosphorus levels will no doubt 
decrease in a DKA patient. And the reason for this is because as the glucose moves from outside the cells to inside the cells via insulin, the cells can now utilize glucose for energy in the form of ATP. Therefore, phosphorus levels will decrease and therefore will need to be supplemented. This is particularly important if the DKA patient ends up being on a ventilator due to respiratory failure. If phosphorus levels are below 1 milligram per deciliter, then the diaphragm will become weak and the patient will have difficulty coming off of the ventilator. I've seen many patients on ICU rounds um, end up on a ventilator because of respiratory failure. So it is critical that you correct all of these electrolytes. The next step in the treatment of DKA involves the correction of hyperglycemia. So how do you do this? Once both the fluid deficit and potassium deficit has been corrected, then at this time, you can begin correcting the hyperglycemia. This is an important point to remember because if you give insulin before correcting the fluid deficit, then this can lead to a worsening of the patient's overall hemodynamics, ultimately causing a fatal outcome. You can give regular insulin, and you can give a bolus of 0.1 units per kilo, followed by a continuous infusion of 0.1 units per kilo per hour. If you choose not to give a bolus, then start the infusion at 0.14 units per kilo per hour. The blood glucose levels should be decreasing by about 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter per hour. It is important that you don't correct the blood glucose faster than this rate as it can cause cerebral edema. If the blood glucose doesn't decrease by this amount, then you need to double the rate of insulin infusion. Once the blood glucose reaches 200 milligrams per deciliter, then you can decrease the rate of insulin infusion to 0.02 to 0.05 units per kilo per hour. At this point, you can also add dextrose to the saline solution. Adding dextrose to the IV fluids will ensure that the patient doesn't become hypoglycemic which is a common pitfall when treating DKA patients with insulin. So the last step is that you need to correct for the metabolic acidosis. Metabolic acidosis is one of the major findings in any DKA patients. In fact, all patients will have a metabolic acidosis. The acidosis that occurs in DKA is due to the metabolism of the free fatty acids resulting in the formation of ketones, especially beta-hydroxybutyrate. The administration of insulin reverses this process, thus correcting the underlying cause of the metabolic acidosis. Insulin administration is therefore the definitive treatment for the metabolic acidosis that occurs in DKA. Sodium bicarbonate administration is controversial and doesn't offer any benefit. If anything, it can be harmful to the patient. If you do decide to administer sodium bicarbonate, 
it should be done when the arterial pH is less than or equal to 6.9. In this case, you can dilute 100 milliequivalents of sodium bicarb and 400 ml of sterile water for injection with 20 milliequivalents of potassium chloride and infuse this at a rate of 200 ml per hour. The serum bicarb level should be repeated every two hours until the pH is greater or, or equal to 7. So how do we know that DKA has been resolved? The resolution of DKA becomes evident when the following happens. The venous pH is greater than 7.3. The serum bicarb is greater than 14. The anion gap is less than 12. The patient has to be eating. The serum beta hydroxybutyrate is within normal limits. And obviously, the glucose should be less than 200 milligrams per deciliter. So once DKA resolves, then at this point, the patient may be transitioned to subcutaneous insulin. Keep in mind that the insulin infusion should continue for two hours after the first dose of subcutaneous insulin. This ensures that the subcutaneous insulin has adequate time to take effect before stopping the insulin infusion. Otherwise, the patient can actually go back into DKA. This is a major pitfall that I have seen happen while on ICU rounds, so don't make this mistake. As for restarting subcutaneous insulin, if the patient had a home regimen that they were on prior to hospitalization, then you can just restart that home regimen. If, however, the patient is insulin naive, then you can administer anywhere from 0.5 to 0.8 units per kilo per day and divide this 50-50 into a basal bolus regimen, assuming the patient is eating. So monitoring. So what do we want to monitor in a DKA patient. The first thing you want to monitor is blood glucose levels. You want to do this hourly until the patient is stable. You want to monitor the patient's BMP, so the potassium, the mag, the phos, the sodium, and the venous pH every two to four hours. You want to monitor the beta hydroxybutyrate levels and make sure that they are coming down. You want to monitor the anion gap and make sure that that's closing. You want to monitor the patient's BUN and serum creatinine every two to four hours and make sure that that's correcting. And you also want to monitor the serum bicarb levels and you want to make sure that that goes back to normal. Our normal bicarb is about 24. All right, that will do it for today's episode. Thanks for listening and I hope you've enjoyed it so far. Stay tuned to episode number two of The Right Pill, a pharmacy podcast where I will be discussing all about sepsis. I'm your host, Pharmacy Ricky. 